Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. If you like this podcast, you will love my new anthology called Moms Don't Have Time to Have Kids. Check it out, and you'll hear from 49 authors about all sorts of things moms don't have time to do. All the authors have been on this podcast. Also, check out my TikTok, at with Zibby and Tracy, my other podcast, Sex Talk with Zibby and Tracy. Check out Moms Don't Have Time to Write on Medium. And of course, my new publishing company called Zibby Books. And now back to our daily author interview site and a quick hello from some of my kids. Hi. Hi. Hello. Enjoy the show. Sarah Rule is the author of Smile, the Story of a Face. And this is my interview with Sarah as part of the Temple Emanuel Stryker Center Women on the Move event series, which if you aren't familiar with, you should be because I help run that series with Marjorie Schuster and moderate some of the events. Sarah is a playwright and writer of other things. Her 10 plays include In the Next Room or The Vibrator Play, The Clean House, and Eurydice. She has been a two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist, a Tony Award nominee, and the recipient of the MacArthur Genius Award. Her plays have been produced on and off Broadway, around the country, internationally, and have been translated into over 15 languages. Her book, 100 Essays I Don't Have Time to Write, was a Times Notable Book of the Year. By the way, I wish I had written that book. Her other books include 44 Poems for You and Letters from Max with Max Ritvo. She has received the Steinberg Award, the Sam French Award, Feminist Press Under 40 Award, the Playwright of the Year for the National Theater Conference, the Susan Smith Blackburn Award, the Whiting Award, the Lilly Award, and a Penn Award for Mid-Career Playwrights. You can read more about her work at sarahrulrulplaywright.com. She teaches at the Yale School of Drama, and she lives in Brooklyn with her husband, Tony Charuvastra a child psychiatrist, and her three children. Hi, Sarah. How are you? Hi, good. How are you? I'm so excited to be interviewing you today. I have like multiple versions of your book. I'm like hardcover <laughs> and galley. I was like so excited about it. I've been shouting Aww. it from the rooftop. So Thank you I'm delighted so to talk to you about it. I guess I don't have the sign. So that'll be the next on my list. <laughs> Acquisition. I, I can send you a sign if you have room. <laughs> <laughs> well, why don't you tell the people listening in case they haven't read your book yet, 
basically what it's about and the experience that led you to write this book. So the book is about a metaphysical and medical odyssey I had over the past 10 years after I had a high-risk pregnancy with twins and they were miraculously born healthy. I developed a condition called Bell's palsy where this nerve on the side of the face, the cranial nerve is paralyzed and most people get better really quickly. And for me, it was a a 10 year long odyssey. And the book is a reflection on what it feels like when your smile sort of walks off your face and wanders around in the world. And in a way, I feel like the whole book was a prayer in a way to ask it to come back and also to make sense of what happened to me. Yes. Well, the book was great on so many levels. One, your experience of parenthood, the anxiety, the risks, the mm-hmm. the pictures of, you know, your kids throwing up, like how open you were <laughs> about it. But and also your honesty from the very beginning that you were worried about the your career and how kids would get how you would fuse the two and not mm-hmm. lose your ability to be a playwright and produce and be in all the rehearsals and all of that. Can you talk a little bit about sort of the impending news when you found Mm -hmm. out you were also expecting twins after you already had a daughter? Yes. And you're the mom of twins too, right? I am the mom of twins. And I related very much to that. And I was also on, you know, some bed rest, had some complications as most twin moms do. So I, yes. So the twins were a bit of a surprise. They were spontaneous. And I had sort of thought one or two children I could manage with my writing life. But when I found out I was having twins, it was, you know, a happy, abundant shock. And at the time, I, I was about to have my first play on Broadway called In the Next Room or the Vibrator Play. So I was very, very pregnant through that whole rehearsal process. And, you know, the theater isn't actually really built for children or families. And I think after I had my first daughter, Anna, who's 15 now, I had learned how to write and go to rehearsals with one child. You know, I would sort of haul Anna to the green room and I would set up a pumping station and we had a rhythm. And with twins, you know, the rhythm was very different. I remember I, after they were born, I had this play Orlando, which is an adaptation of the wolf novel. And it's about gender to some degree. And I would bring first one baby one day and then, and then the next, so I could keep my milk supply up, but I didn't bringing two seemed overwhelming in a rehearsal room. And the costume designer thought I was dressing them purposely in boy clothes and then girl clothes every other day as a comment about the play. And I was like, no, there are two of them, <laughs> the boy and a girl. <laughs> I remember having to do that too. I was in like a new baby group and I would bring one at a time. And then the next mm-hmm. week I would bring a different one because I couldn't figure out how to manage that. Yeah. It's a lot to manage too. I mean, I think when I found out I had Bell's palsy, I was with a lactation consultant who was teaching me to do something called the football hold, which maybe you've yep. done where you yep. carry, you know, you hold two of them and breastfeed them at the same time, which, you know, I'm not terribly athletic. So... <laughs> <laughs> the football sort of eluded me. But you did it for a year, by the way, you said in the book. That's amazing. I, I mean, did do it for a year. To you. Yeah, no, I could not do that. But anyway. <laughs> I do find mothers of twins, it's a little bit like going through battle. I feel like you you meet each other and there's a lot to talk about because yeah. it is sort of motherhood and extremis. Yes. I was, and I started with twins. So then I had Mm -hmm. a single daughter after, and I was like, oh my gosh, one baby. This is going to be a piece of cake. (laughs) Did it seem breezy after that? 
It did. It was mm-hmm. so easy. I was like, oh my gosh, she could just come with me everywhere. And right. it's just yeah. her and she happened to be an easy baby. And anyway, yeah. we're getting off topic, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's sort of the topic, but yes, carry on. Well, the topic is not me. So we'll go back to you <laughs> and your book and your story. One way that you captured the reader's attention right away is sort of the intensity of your experience giving birth and the NICU and on and just the fear, right? The fear mm-hmm. that haunts any parent over something happening that's out of your control to your children, either when they are tiny or when they are adults. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem yeah. to go away, but yours was so magnified because of the twins and what really happened in your husband being a doctor. And talk about the moment when you were about to leave the NICU. And I know you have a, a section you can read about that too. Sure. Yeah. So, so just going back for a moment, I had something called cholestasis of the liver, which is why the pregnancy was so high risk. I mean, twins pregnancies are a little bit high risk anyway. And then I was on bed rest and that was very Victorian. And then cholestasis of the liver, if you don't know what it is, it's a, it's bile is leaking into your bloodstream, causing an intractable itch. That's really quite torturous, but the worst part is the anxiety because it can kill the babies. So they deliver you right at 36 weeks to make sure the baby survive. So I can just read a little chapter. And I couldn't believe, by the way, that the doctors would not believe you. You were like, I think I have this. Please test me. <laughs> I've diagnosed myself. And they were like, no, no, you're fine. And of course you were right. Well, it's very rare. And I I was working from a website called itchymoms.com, which didn't maybe sound very like it had expertise behind it, but I think they've changed their name since then. But thank God for it. I mean, it really was through this network of women that I knew what was happening to me. So the babies miraculously were delivered and then they were rushed to the NICU. They had breathing episodes. They were a little bit early and then I got Bell's palsy. So this is a little scene of me going to the NICU with my frozen face. We sped to the NICU in the ice and cold. Once there, I saw William in his little plastic box breathing. Where's my daughter? I asked. You mean baby B? The nurse replied. Yes, Hope. She's sicker than your son. So she's over there. Sicker then? What does that mean? I asked. I don't know, she said. You'll have to ask the doctor when he rounds. Hope was in a little plastic box attached to monitors. I wanted to take her out, hold her, feed her. There was a bottle of formula on top of her plastic box, even though I was breastfeeding. I asked if I could move her closer to William so I could feed them both. The nurse said, no, we don't have enough chairs. I spent some time feeling angry at the nurses for not having chairs. I wasn't yet used to my frozen face. And I realized I didn't know how to be ingratiating with strangers without smiling. How does one do that, especially if one is from the Midwest, where a smile is almost a prerequisite for citizenhood? They hand them out along with lollipops at the bank. Nice, big, untroubled smiles that you have to undo when you move to New York. I once read that Americans smile more because we are a heterogeneous country of immigrants, that we don't always speak each other's language, So we smile to signal friendliness to those who are beyond kin. In any case, I tried to make friends without smiling in the NICU. I met another mother who had twins the same day I did. She'd had a C-section. Her husband wheeled her in a wheelchair to visit her babies. In the waiting room of the NICU, Orthodox Jewish men prayed. I can still see them now in prayer shawls, davening. It was the only thing that made all the machines bearable the human swaying to the internal sound of hope. I wished I could pray in a visible way. I wished I could pray. I just love that. I love how you describe things, the way you see them, the language you use, and then just the experience. 
itself, all the emotion behind the words. It's really amazing. Thank Um, you. And then you had to deal not only, of course, with the pressures and stresses of having twins, but then this new medical issue of your own that also affected the way everybody was even treating you. It was like you had to learn how to exist in the world in a whole different way, identity-wise, physically, everything. Mm -hmm. Um, When you went to write this, how did you even know how, like, I just feel like there was so much coming at you all at once. How did you figure out how to tell the story in a way that, like, didn't seem that way to the reader that it became clear when mm-hmm. I imagine it was a, a rush of stress and fear and everything. It was a rush. And I mean, I think the fact that I had 10 years to kind of contemplate what had happened to me helped a lot. And I approached the book almost like peeling an onion. I kind of knew what the broad scope of it was. And then I was peeling back layer after layer. And then it was interesting working with my editor because at a point I realized that my tenses were all over the place, past tense, present, you know, and as a playwright, you're always writing in the present tense pretty much because stage time unfolds in real time. And it was interesting that my tenses were all over the map. And I think, you know, in an early draft, and I think it was because my sense of time was really disordered and my sense of where the illness was in my life was disordered. And at a point I put Bell's palsy and all of that in the past tense and the healing in the present tense. And that probably irritated the copy editors, but it made a kind of cosmic sense to me that the healing was in the present tense. Will you just briefly touch on when exactly it started? I know we're seeing a question come in. Sure. Yeah. So it was two days I think after I gave birth and my mom was there and the lactation consultant was there and she said, your eye looks a little droopy. And I was like taken aback because it seemed slightly insulting. And I think I made a joke about being Irish because my great uncles, (laughs) when they drink, you know, their eyes turn into little crescent moon shapes. So I said, oh, I'm Irish. And she said, that's not what I mean. Go look in the mirror. So I looked in the mirror and this whole face had kind of fallen down and, and wouldn't move. And I thought I might've had a stroke and my husband's a doctor and he told me to call the neurologist and he diagnosed Bell's palsy. And usually, you know, you get better within three months and it's really a small minority that has this long recovery. And in my case, I think what was especially hard was the neurologist after a year said, well, you're not going to get better. There's nothing you can do to help your face. So you can have experimental neurosurgery, which I recommend, but otherwise don't try acupuncture, PT, nothing, nothing will help you. You're just not getting better. And in my case, it turned out there were some other underlying conditions and, and all those modalities did help. It just took really a long time. And I think for a long time, I thought, well, how is a chronic illness interesting? <laughs> you know, it's long, it's incremental. There's not necessarily an apotheosis, but I came to realize through writing it that life is, you know, a chronic condition, you know, in many ways, and art has to make space for that. And I was recently reading a, a memoir by Chuck Mee, who's also a playwright, and he had polio at a young age. And he talks about in his memoir, the idea that to make sense of a sudden illness or sudden rupture, it's almost as though you need to make aesthetic sense of it to become whole again. And I feel like writing the book was that for me. Wow. When you wrote about 
your relationship with your twins and how there were all these studies about, I can't remember the word, like silent mother or, you know, Mm -hmm. the face. Still face. Yeah. And how, when you were dealing with all of that, how you tried to show your real self to your kids and yet knowing that they only saw this new version of you, I found that to be a really poignant moment too. Do you think about that often or what was that like for you? Yeah, it was hard. I really wanted to smile at my babies and that was in a way the worst torture for me. And I thought, how will they know that I'm joyful, that I'm, you know, that I adore them when I can't smile with my whole face because they're still learning how the face is coded. And my husband, who's a child psychiatrist, long, long time ago had shown me these studies about still face which is kind of a cruel experiment in a way. I think it's, you know, you take a really loving, warm mother and then you tell them to not interact with their baby at all and show them still face, like just first be like, oh, and then suddenly be like, and the baby freaks out. And so I thought, oh my God, am I, am I giving my children still face? And in retrospect, they had my voice, they had my touch, they had my gestures, they had all of this warmth coming at them. They weren't encoding that half my smile wasn't functioning, but I worried about it for a long time. And I think I even worried about it until writing this book and my daughter, Anna, you know, who's older was listening to me talk to my editor on the, I was on speakerphone and I said, Oh, that must've been interesting. What did you make of that, Anna? And she said, well, it was interesting. And for me, I'd always thought of your face as kind of a beautiful house that suddenly fell down or a wall fell down and you spent all this time trying to rebuild the wall brick by brick and you you couldn't quite do it but when we looked at you all we saw was our home oh <laughs> <laughs> so i thought if anna had said that maybe i wouldn't have needed to write the book you know i think we always think of the unconditional love parents have for children but it's also quite stunning that children have that unconditional love and acceptance for their parents Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes we all have stuff we need to get off our chests. Even if we don't think it's interfering with our daily life, there are some things you just haven't processed, be it grief or trauma, eating disorders, anything. It might be time to work on those things, and I have a solution for you. Therapy. Online therapy by BetterHelp. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. I took the brief questionnaire online where there were, I don't know, 
20 questions. It didn't take long at all, maybe three minutes. And then I got matched with a therapist who could help me work on whatever. I picked trauma because even though it happened in 2001, I am somehow still not over the loss of my friend on 9-11. And it is what it is. BetterHelp is going to help And I am so excited, especially because with my special code, instead of $80 a month, it is 10% off, $72 a month, which is so much less than traditional therapy. And you'll get a perfect therapist for you. There are 35,000 therapists to choose from, so you'll find the right one. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash moms don't have time today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash moms don't have time. It's true. That was so beautiful. Oh my gosh. <laughs> what you said a minute ago, you know, it keeps going through my head about the doctors again, sort of not recognizing or giving you the wrong information. And after a year telling you, you wouldn't get better. And it makes me think of when you saw that one acupuncturist who said that perhaps the per- first person you saw had actually damaged the nerve and mm-hmm. that it would take a while to recover. Do you believe that or not? I have no idea. I mean, I've seen so many Eastern medicine specialists at this point, you know, I was lucky to be able to do that. And it's hard for me to make sense of what was helpful, what was not helpful. I mean, I think for sure physical therapy was helpful to me and I didn't try that until really 10 years in. I tried it too early on and, you know, I talk about in the book going early on to a physical therapist and I was making, he told me to make expressions in the mirror that I really couldn't make. And so I kind of look like Cosmo from singing in the rain. If you've ever seen that scene where he's like, ah, you know, making really insane expressions. And the physical therapist friend was like, dude, that's insane. And like took a picture of me without my permission, making, you know, really strange expressions while trying to smile. So for that reason, I didn't try again and until a decade later. And when I did, it was with a woman who had herself had Bell's palsy and she really, mirrored my face and smiled with me. And it made such a huge difference. And I feel like it was so therapeutic emotionally, but also physically trying to retrain those muscles with her. I loved in the book too, how you show your relationship with your own mother and how you idolized her and her career and how she also had Bell's palsy. And how even that one scene where she was sitting next to you in the audience when you were watching your own play, and she said something like, are you displeased with this? And you said, no, I'm not displeased. I can't move my face. (laughs) And how she came in and and helped. How do you think this has affected your relationship or, or has it? Or maybe that's too hard to even know, but... I don't know, but I could read a little passage that you had asked about, about my mom, if you want. Sure, Yeah. Yeah. So my mom had had Bell's palsy too, but recovered more fully and quickly than I did. After my mother's two month retreat from the world, her face got much better. It's hard to know where my mother ends and I begin. Isn't that the story with so many mothers and daughters? I remember when I was little, she taught me what a Venn diagram was. We were on a train from Chicago to Texas to see my cousins. In the dining car on a napkin, my mother carefully drew two circles showing me the overlapping section. What do these two circles have in common? Here, she said, pointing. I was fascinated by the logic of that diagram. Mothers and daughters, two circles, and the all-important bounded sections where they are complete unto themselves. Daughters perhaps have a tendency to point out the differences, mothers to point out the commonalities. My mother and I both love theater, both love books, 
both were afflicted by Bell's palsy, and also the bounded section, where two are not alike, she recovered. I love that. This is great. All these favorite parts of mine. I need to hear you reading them. I know I don't have to go back and listen to the audiobook as well. But <laughs> How did your relationship, did you ever feel like this unspeakable annoyance that she improved and you did not? Or was that just off the table? I feel like- No, I, no, I don't think so. I think it was more mysterious. You know, why am I not getting better? Why am I not getting better? You know, people are supposed to get better. My own mother got better. Why am I not getting better? I think it was more that. Well, tell me a little bit more about how you even got started being a playwright and how you achieved all that success and like, where did that begin? And did you ever write these types of essays that sort of became this memoir? Was that a a form that you experimented with also, or did you go straight to playwriting or how did, what happened? Mm -hmm. So I always wanted to be a writer from a young age, but not necessarily a playwright, but Speaking of my mother, she's an actress and she used to take me to rehearsals when I was little. So that world was familiar to me and I and I understood it, but it seemed like too decadent and fun to actually have that be your job. And it wasn't until I met Paula Vogel, who was my teacher at Brown, that I really considered a life in playwriting. And Paula was one of those incredible mentors who not only teaches you substance, but also is an example of how to live as a writer in the world. So studying with Paula, I really started writing plays in earnest. And you asked about the essay form. I mean, I never stopped writing essays, I guess, or poetry. I really started as a poet. And when I, after I had the twins, I wrote a book called hundred essays. I don't have time to write. Oh, I have that. Yes. You do. I have that. Yeah, it's right. Yes. I have it right there. It's in your I white section. It. What's that? It's in, <laughs> it's yes. in the white section. Yes, it is. Yes. I, you know, because time was so disordered when I had the twins, I I just wanted to write little distilled essays. I mean, in terms of your, your, you know, moms don't have time to read thing. It's perfect. People can read it on the toilet because they're really micro essays, you know, or you can read it before falling asleep. And the form was really for me, can I have a thought in the morning and retain it until I have time in the day to write it down? And that was how that book came to be. So in a way, smile, is an extension of the thinking I was doing then, but but now that I finally have time to write in long form. Yes, I remember stumbling upon that book in a bookstore and thinking like, oh my gosh, like I hope this person doesn't think I'm ripping off her whole brand. You know? oh my God. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yes, I forgot all about that. But yeah, I loved the book and it is great to have sort of snackable bits, right? And books that you can dive into and stay and bits you can pop in and out of and just getting that sort of hit is, is great. Like I love just a snippet or whatever. I think that's like, well, I think I've been talking to writer friends recently who say they have reader's block, Mm. which I think is interesting. Like it's a new corollary of writer's block. And I think it's part of the disordered attention we have with phones and the 24 hour news cycle. It's very hard to take in long form and truly get absorbed. So I do, I do love a short essay. I love reading poetry. I love, I love reading, you know, in the, in the little moments you have in the day. I have this new anthology out. Moms don't have time to have kids. And it's the same thing. I'm like, <laughs> you can read it and you can read each essay in three minutes. It's all authors from my podcast. So, mm-hmm. um, but I think you're right. I think that, 
you know, on TikTok, they had to shorten the videos, right? From like eight, 11 seconds to eight seconds or something like wow. that because they couldn't keep people's attention for 11 seconds. I mean, it's crazy, Incredible. especially for, I mean, I have teenagers. I have, my twins are 14 and a half at this point. And it's hard to be like, oh, wait, stop that and sit down and like immerse yourself in a book. And it might not get good for a hundred pages, but you're going to stick with it. They're like, what? <laughs> Yeah, it's. I wonder how the brain will change. I mean, with theater as my primary mode, I'm really attuned to presence in time and space and, you know, abandoning the world at the door of this darkened theater and letting yourself be in another place for two hours. And it's one of the few places where we do it. And I'm, I have this opera at the Met right now that's an adaptation of an earlier play of my Eurydice. And the director doesn't let anyone have phones or electronics in the room rehearsing. And it's kind of amazing to realize that the artists themselves have been disordered mm-hmm. by the attention economy. You know, that even for the artists, it feels like a monastic ritual to, to really stop and really be a truly attentive, loving first audience for these incredible opera singers. Like, why would you want to look at your phone when you could listen to this extraordinary voice? And yet we have this bizarre training that I do think is affecting our, our brains. I totally agree. I used to go to the movies and it was no problem. Like turn off your phones. Okay, fine, right. whatever. And now, like even when you said sitting in a darkened room for two and a half hours, I'm like, I don't know if I could do that right now. <laughs> like, uh-huh. I'm like I'm, I don't know. I hope that it was there an intermission. I would need an intermission. <laughs> like, you know, not that, yeah. you know, of course there's like the fear always as a mom that like, yep. I need to be in touch and what if yes. something happens and I need to be reachable forever. But yeah, I don't know if it's, or maybe I'm just getting trained like everybody else in the world. And it's really, although I do still love long form fiction and, and narrative, but I don't know. It takes a different kind of long, long form fiction to really immerse myself these days, I find, but also the mom thing of of wanting to be reachable and interruptible, I think is such a paradox. It's like, we want to always be reachable, but then we're never reachable because we're not actually present. (laughs) You know, it's like, Oh my gosh. I was sitting right here. I shouldn't even admit this. My daughter was sitting on the couch behind me and she was doing her homework and I was here Mm -hmm. and she was trying to talk to me and talk to me. And she's like, I'm just trying to like, spend time with you, mom. And I was like, no, I'm right here. I was like, I'm right here. And from behind me, she was like, but are you? Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh man. So of course I like got up and I walked over. I sat next to her on the couch. Mm -hmm. I was like, why did she have to remind me of that? Right. Like my being here working on my computer with like half an ear to my daughter is not Mm -hmm. being with my daughter. Like I'm better off spending five good minutes with her than an hour with me being distracted. I also think, I, yeah, I saw like a beautiful little shadow of your daughter, like at some point, I just, you know, in the corner. And I feel like, you know, in the 19th century, when, of course, you couldn't get anything done as a woman. I don't know how Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote, <laughs> you know, which she had like nine kids or something. But I sometimes think, well, if you're sort of sewing or mending, you know, it's like you're doing something, but actually the kids know they sort of have your mental attention. I, I think kids crave that kind of being with I, I sometimes think kids don't actually want me staring at them, trying to be truly present with them. They want me to be somewhat otherwise occupied, but not with my mental work that totally consumes yes. my emotional attention, you know, but I don't mend socks. So I'm sorry. You know, yes. <laughs> I don't, I don't do it. <laughs> this weekend, we actually went like holiday shopping in person because mm-hmm. I've decided like, I don't want to take shopping time out of my time. 
And I want mm-hmm. to take it out of my work time. So it's going to have to be done with the kids. And instead of doing it online, I was going to make it a whole thing. Anyway, I do think this speaks to your book, so mm-hmm. I'm not just totally going off on a tangent. But, you know, taking them and remembering what it was like to, like, give and be mm-hmm. in the moment and think of someone else and say, like, look at this whole store. What mm-hmm. would this particular cousin of yours like? Right? Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, how do they get that skill? Mm-hmm. Right? Anyway, so all to say, yes, as moms of sort of teen ish and even yeah. younger, it's I think that we don't realize sometimes as parents that we're not showing the way our parents showed us as much. Mm, right. It's a little bit internalized because we're doing a lot of activity with a screen. And I think then you're not modeling. I think that's right. true. Yeah. And that moment is so resting and wonderful. The moment when children decide it makes them happier to give than receive. They know that actually that's what makes you happy. It's, I mean, it's magical. So to be able to do that in real time with them. Yeah. It's great. How do you do your holiday shopping? (laughs) Are you online? (laughs) Have you thought about it? Not yet. Once this opera opens on November 23rd, then I'll think about it again. (laughs) (laughs) So what other work are you actively engaged in at the moment? That's the main thing, you know, going to rehearsals. And it's not as though you rewrite a libretto that much, but being moral support and having thoughts. There's the church bell saying it's noon. And I wrote one haiku a day during the pandemic just to keep myself sane and as a marker of time. So Copper Canyon is publishing that in the spring. It's called Love Poems in Quarantine. My kids make fun of me because my themes tend to be love and death. (laughs) What else is there? I mean, what what else do we have to talk about? I mean, that's really yeah. it. That's the, yeah. the crux of the whole thing. Yeah. Have you have you? Maybe it's too early with the publication, but I'm curious if people have responded to you in ways you were not expecting, or maybe apologized, or have said things inadvertently that you know sometimes you pointed out like things that didn't sound so good or whatever. So, have you had any responses that you weren't expecting or? Anything like that? You know, I've had a lot of responses from friends who said, oh my God, I didn't actually know what you were going through. And I said, well, that's good because I was trying to maintain a plucky, no-nonsense stoicism, Midwestern cheerfulness, and I didn't want anyone to know that the Bell's palsy actually was giving me any suffering or that I went through a period of postpartum depression, I think, you know, in retrospect, that I was quite unaware of at the time. So I've had a lot of reactions from friends like that. And I, and again, I said, not, please don't apologize. You were absolutely there for me. I just, I didn't want anyone to know. And I think part of the book is coming out of that form of hiding. I think we could all hide a little bit less in that way. And other reactions I've had have been so moving from people who've had strokes or Bell's palsy, an actress who had Bell's palsy, who never recovered, who found it sort of disqualifying in terms of her career. A lot of pregnant women who've had Bell's palsy because it can be associated with either your third trimester or right afterwards. So it's been really moving hearing from those people. That's so great. There was this one scene I just wanted to flag really quickly about gratitude with you know, Thanksgiving coming up here. Mm. I thought this was particularly apropos of the holiday. This is when you were at the Tonys and not win, but sorry about that. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> you said, and this is your nanny who was at home, I guess. Once home, Yang Zom told me she had hoped I would win so that I would be able to thank people on television. 
As a Tibetan Buddhist, Yangzam is always attuned to values like gratitude. I've always thought it was a strange quirk of all awards programs that they foster greed and the desire in artists to win, mainly so that they can thank their dear ones in public. The system creates competition among artists who are otherwise compatriots, so that the winners can say publicly that they're grateful to their third grade teacher, their mother, their children, God. In truth, we don't have to win to be grateful. We can always thank the people we love, the people who help us, even when we don't win an award. We often just forget to. At any rate, I thank Yang Zam, and she went home. <laughs> thank you for reading that. I love that passage. How's Yang Zam these days? Are you guys still in touch? She, oh, she. Oh, she's like part of our lives. We I see her all the time. <laughs> Amazing. I feel like once I had twins, I, I kind of gave up feeling like I could do everything myself. Yes. There is something to admitting complete defeat. (laughs) (laughs) I know there are going to be a lot of questions for you, but my last question is what advice would you give to aspiring authors? Aspiring authors, don't give up. Cultivate patience. It's a long, it's a long game. You know, if, if, if you're lucky, life is long and find a reason to write that is intrinsically motivating to you you know, not, not for an award, not for publication. I recently, I always reread Lewis Hyde's The Gift because it's such a, it's such an incredible book about being a poet and being an artist in a kind of capitalist economy and the idea of art as gift, that there's such a thing as a gift economy, speaking of picking out gifts for people (laughs) and that artists are actually in a gift economy. So at a certain point, I teach at Yale School of Drama and I have my students write gift plays for each other when they're getting to know each other. And I like to think that every play is a gift for an audience, but also maybe for a particular person in your life. And I think it's a way you could approach fiction or poetry, you know, that if one person in your life might be pleased by this gift, you know, you've done your job, even if you don't end up reaching publication or getting a, you know, an important grant. And I I wrote a little essay on writer's block for poets and writers where I tried to anatomize the different, I I think writer's block is is a chimera. I think it doesn't really exist, but trying to anatomize what we think of as writer's block, which often is just not not having your butt in a desk and paying attention for an hour a day. Um, Usually if we do that, we, we end up writing. Very true. Well, thank you for this. Thank Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 
Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.